1: We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a series of author-hosted podcasts uh, distributing literary content to a worldwide audience. I'm your host, Landis Wade, a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here. Very quickly, before we get to the uninterrupted interview today, a few quick words about some of the benefits uh, for our listeners. Number one. We have show notes uh, for every episode uh, with images, links, and information about our authors at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And number two, if you're into audiobooks, uh, we have a relationship with Libro.fm, which supports indie bookstores. If you sign up with Libro to get your audiobooks and use the promo code Charlotte Reader, you'll get an extra audiobook free. Number three, if you go to charlottereaderspodcast.com or my personal website, landisway.com, and you sign up for the book report, you're going to get it every other Tuesday. And here's what you'll get. Recommended readings, author interviews and videos, reading and writing tips, doses of inspiration, a free ebook by yours truly, and more. We won't spam you. That takes way too much time. And finally, we've got a lot of great content that we put out on our exclusive Patreon channel. If you like what we do here, uh, that is our mission of helping authors give voice to their written words, and you'd like to help us uh, defray the costs of this project, you can jump over to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. And you can tap into all the great extra content we've got that's curated by our authors and me about uh, their writing lives and the craft and business of writing and other things too. But enough with the prologue, let's get to the uninterrupted story of our guest and the one they've written. In this episode, which is part of our guest-hosted series, guest host, award-winning writer Paul Kerzeha visits with award-winning author Aaron Gwynn, whose latest book is All God's Children, an enthralling novel set on the frontier of Texas in the period before the Civil War. The New York Times says Gwen's novel is a powerful depiction of the rough realities of frontier life, of the vicious influence of racism in a place where men who didn't dare look at you in daylight might burn you alive come sundown. Book List says that readers will relish these unforgettable characters in this expansive view of Texas wild ride to joining the Union. And Sam Sachs Wall Street Journal observes that Gwen has couched his meanings within a swift and skillful Western which allows him to unfold with devastating power. The very people who founded the American West, this bracing novel suggests, were those most desperate to be independent from it. Guest host Paul A. I was the very first author who appeared on Charlotte Riz Podcast. Like me, he's an attorney, but he's not recovering just yet. He's still practicing law. When he and I met, we were in a critique group together and he was working on his master's in creative writing at UNC Charlotte, which he has now completed. And that's also where Aaron Gwynn is a professor. When I reached out to Paul about being a guest host, he said he really wanted to interview Aaron, and now I know why. And about the same time, I was at Parko Books, and Sally Brewster picked up a book off the shelf and said, Landis, you should really have this author on your podcast. So here we are. I'm now turning over the hosting reins. Paul's going to be the guest host. I'm turning it over to him, and Paul, I'm going to let you take it away and uh, welcome Aaron and uh, have some fun.
2: Thank you, Landis. Uh, Aaron, I really want to thank you for uh, coming on to the podcast. You you are uh, one of those authors I really wanted to interview for this, and uh, I'm glad that you accepted. Uh, This, of course, is uh, a podcast that we're going to focus on your latest book, All God's Children, a novel of the American West. Uh, You have a number of other titles uh, under your belt as well, Dog on a Cross, which is a a series of short stories about Oklahoma Pentecostal community. Ah, uh, Winds War, uh, which is interestingly about Army Rangers on horseback at the beginning of the Afghan War, uh, almost a mix of Western and 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 modern war. So I think that's fascinating.
0: A Middle Eastern, I call it.
2: A Middle Eastern. That's that's a fitting title, I think. Uh, and then The World Beneath, which was your first novel. Uh, so with that, let's talk about All God's Children. Uh, first, congrats on the new novel. And thank you. Uh, uh, thanks for being here, and, and tell us a little bit about your process as you developed this particular novel. About what what kind of drove you towards this this genre and uh, towards these characters in particular.
0: Right. Well, I started. Thank you for having me. I uh, say that to uh, you and Landis. Um, Honor to be talking to y'all. I started the book in 2013, the summer of 2013. And I learned about um, a man named Robert Lemons, um, last name L-E-M-M-O-N-S, who was an African American man, was born in 1842 and born into slavery, um, was uh, quote unquote owned by a man named Levi English this is in, uh, County, Texas. And after emancipation, he becomes, uh, a master mustanger, uh, a catcher of wild horses. And so he would go off into the wild horse desert in Western Texas, uh, by himself. Um, he would take off all of his clothes, um, get rid of, uh, bury his food, and he would only have his boots on, and he would live with the horses until they trusted him as a horse. He would wrest control away from the Alpha Stallion by mimicking the Alpha Stallion's movements, and then he would lead entire herds of wild horses off the desert uh, back to settlements. Um, A fascinating uh, figure, a, a genius of the horse um, and mustanging. So I started writing about him in the 1860s and 1870s. And as I went farther into the research and farther into the writing, uh, that led me back to his mother, uh, who was named Cecilia. Uh, That led me back to um, the people to whom he was enslaved. And I realized that the book that I was writing needed to be the first part of this story uh, and for those who have read the book we know when we when we meet Robert uh, or the last time we see him he's he's only 18 years old and mostly you only see him up to the point of uh, being five years old so there there are two more uh, big chunks of the story that the novel doesn't cover the novel that we have doesn't cover.
2: That's interesting because now I, I understand that this story is really the story of his parents. Correct. Correct. And and, and what led them up to that moment uh, that, that you discussed where he, he is beginning to get into uh, the training of horses. Uh, so before we get into the details of that, one of the things that's really interesting about your novel is that it is based a, in a time and place that uh, is fascinating part of American history. Uh, but also one that's not that well known or discussed in, in general. And, and that is the time uh, as Texas became an independent country and then eventually joined the United States and sort of the wars and the combining of people that occurred there. Uh, tell me something about that time period so, so that we can kind of set the readers up for, for what's going on.
0: So I'll do the history of Texas from 1824 to 1861 in in about a minute. So in 1824, Mexico wins its independence from Spain. They uh, create a republic, have a constitution, and they have a problem with the Comanche uh, north of them. And the Comanche had, at that point, come down off the plains and driven the Apache into the sea. They had nearly wiped out the Tonkawa and the Karankawa They had turned Mexico into what Philip Meyer describes as a slave market. And so the Mexican government realized that they needed some sort of protection, and something between them and the Comanche. So in talks with a man named Moses Austin and later his son, Stephen Austin, they developed a plan whereby... Anglos from uh, America would be allowed to colonize Texas to form a kind of meat barrier between Mexico and the Comanche. And the hope of the Mexican government was that instead of massacring Mexicans, the Comanche would begin massacring Anglo-Texans. And that didn't happen for a while. But in 1835, uh, Texas revolted against Mexico, won its independence, became a republic for 10 years. That's 1836 to 1846. Uh, then the trouble with the Comanche starts. The Texans, the Comanche fight, and um, the Texans never fully solve the Comanche, so-called Comanche problem. Um, 1846, Texas is admitted to the United States as a state. Much of Sam Houston's uh, chagrin, um, fourteen years later, secedes from the Union, destroying everything that Sam Houston had spent the last twenty years
2: uh, working, fighting, and uh, for. So yeah, it's it's in this sort of tumultuous time that that you've set your novel uh, in those years leading up to the Civil War uh, and and the various wars between. Uh, Mexico and the United States, and/or Texas, uh, and, and into that story, you, you kind of place two characters who who are your primary characters, and that's Duncan Lamones and Cecilia, mm-hmm. uh, the parents of of the the uh, their son that we discussed earlier, uh, and both of them are, are sort of characters out of place. Not only in their societies, but but certainly within Texas. Uh, Duncan is the is a son of a Kentucky preacher who is is gay and leaves Kentucky because of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, while Cecilia is a, a an escaped slave with, with sort of the unique background of being literate, right. uh, having been taught early on uh, how to read. Uh, sort of tell me how you uh, is that the actual history of the parents or is that uh, a, a little bit of creative addition as well. Well, there is
0: the only information in, the, in any kind of records that you can find about Robert Lemon's mother, Cecilia, is her name, and that she escaped uh, kept, well, she escaped captivity, escaped slavery, actually in Texas, and she fled to Mexico, and then later on returned for him. Um, when he was an adult and, and she lived with him. So that's the, that's the historical story. I realized that as I worked with her as a character or as she worked on me or have this weird process, um, whereby characters come into being, you know, uh, an author's imagination. Um, there was this dynamic story. Uh, She was, or she is in the novel, this brilliant woman um, who is um, an escape artist, uh, extraordinarily driven. Um, She's got a a brilliant mind and she's tough as nails. And so because of that, she is not fit to the culture of the time or uh, the the politics and uh, of the time. And then you have uh, Duncan who was a man who later hired the actual Robert Lemons when he was an adult as a as a ranch hand. And Robert clearly thought so highly of him that he took Duncan Lamon's last name. So he was just Robert and then he became Robert Lamons after taking Duncan's last name. And then people begin to misspell it as Robert Lemons. So, but he thought so highly of this man uh, who, was, who whose employee he was after Emancipation that he took his name. And I, I thought that was pretty interesting. In my conception of Duncan, um, he develops this passionate crush on the, the man that Cecilia ends up with. Um, this country boy named Sam. And I realized, okay, I I really feel like this character is gay. I feel like this is what has made him not a fit for the culture of the time. This is what has displaced him and caused him to to try to start his life over on the frontier. Um, There's a there's a very interesting book, and of course, I'm blanking on the author's name. Um, University of Nebraska does it. Uh, it's an account of um, gay men who were in the fur trade in the Rocky Mountains, 1820s, 1830s, called Men in Eden. And it was uh, men who were gay in this, in this uh, community and in this environment where there were very few women. Uh, in this profession, we're just having one hell of a time. Um, that's that's a very interesting account. So we know that there were obviously these relationships on the frontier. Um, they're referred to as me- in memoirs. Uh, Noah Smith book will will talk about two men being batched up together, um, sort of like a shortened form of bachelor. I would imagine. Um, so I found these two folks who were misfits, and then the third is the the person they both fall in love with, Sam, Sam Fisk.
2: Yeah. As you point out, Duncan was not the actual parent, but, uh, right, right. at the end of the novel, it, it, it felt like Cecilia and Duncan were, uh, absolutely the, the parents and that's how they acted towards the child after that.
0: Absolutely. No, he beca- he very much becomes a surrogate, um, father for, for Robert.
2: So while, while you're discussing Sam, uh, one of the, one of the interesting things about Sam is that, to, to me, and, and uh, Duncan and uh, Cecilia fall in love with him, um, but each for a different reason. I mean, tell yeah. me what is the attraction of Sam that, that both of them uh, fell into? Because Sam himself, of course, has, has personal issues of his own. Yeah, I thought, well, for Duncan, he represents
0: this um, rough beautiful wild man who is highly competent and there's this passage where sam reveals early on sam reveals to duncan that he's illiterate Uh, sam can't read or write and duncan feels protective of him for that reason and so there's this weird thing of this uh Sam is is an incredible fighter. He's incredibly competent in battle. He's incredibly competent as a hunter and a survivalist. But for any kind of um, purpose that requires being literate, he's a fish out of water. Um, And so Duncan develops an attraction to him and and, and a kind of sense of being protective of him, which sort of fires this. Um, this romance that's one-sided because Sam is not really aware of Duncan's feelings. Um, And for Cecilia, it's a similar thing, but she sees that Sam is competent and that Sam's ignorance of the way uh, quote polite society conducts itself means that he doesn't think of her as a slave. He doesn't think of race in the same way. He doesn't have the same connect uh, conception of social hierarchy. Um, so he he encounters her as a person, and he's not intimidated by the fact that she's literate and he isn't.
2: He he seems to me to have, a, have a, an innocence uh, of and almost a willful ignorance of the ways of society because uh, he wants to see it the way he wants to. To live his life, uh, I just thought he was a very interesting character, and, and- yeah,
0: I, I'm I'm proud of Sam. I'm proud of the the creation of him, and I can't always say that with the characters that that people my books. But I I um I was excited about him. When I talk about him, I find that there's an excitement still. He seems apart from me. Um, the things that I'm I'm most interested in and proudest of in my books or those things that seem like they didn't come from me. I don't know how I got there. I don't know where they came from. I don't know how my imagination, um, landed on them. And and he seems like he didn't come from me. And he seems like he lives beyond the book for me. Um, and I'm still curious about him and there's still some mystery to him for me. And so, um, he would have been one of the Scots Irish people that, that followed that, uh, you know, Jacksonian migration from uh, Virginia down into North Carolina, Tennessee, Missouri, and then into the unassigned territories or what today is Oklahoma, um, which is the progression uh, my own family ancestors took. And and there's a, uh, a rough justice to those folks. Um, they'll fight you at the drop of a hat and they'll drop it themselves. Um, but there's a there's a real sense of fairness about those people. At the same time, that there there are qualities that are um, quite violent, and they uh, they like liquor. <laughs> well,
2: listen. Let's give uh, people a chance to to uh, kind of hear Duncan himself. Uh, if you want to give a quick reading at the beginning of the novel, when you're introducing the character of Duncan. Uh, I think that would help people get an idea for uh, not only your novel, but for Duncan, the character.
0: I came down that winter from Kentucky, traveling the river on a flatboat with two other passengers and a cargo of ice. There were crates and crates of it, packed in sawdust and stacked shoulder high. Those days, most folks hadn't heard of buying ice. I don't doubt but there were some in the South who'd hardly seen it. If I'd done his mama taught me and kept up with the papers I'd have known about Frederick Tudor who was building himself an ice trade out of Boston, cutting blocks from farm ponds and shipping them to Cuba, Charleston, Savannah. He just opened a market in New Orleans, which is where me and that barge were headed. I knew none of this at the time. I figured the crates were full of bug juice or tobacco i just turned 20, and though my folks had lettered me and hoped I'd take an interest in business or the like, little caught my attention unless it had four legs and passed in front of my rifle. My second day on the river, curiosity got the better of me, and I asked one of the boatmen what they were hauling. He was standing at the edge of the craft, staring into the brown water, keeping an eye out for Sawyers. A tree trunk could stave the bottom of a boat quick as you could holler hickory. It's ice, he told me. How's that? Ice, he said. I figured he was just jobbing me, but he looked serious enough. I asked what they were carrying that for, and he told me they sold it. Folks give you money for ice? Long as it ain't melted, he said. Well, I might have just been a tanner's boy from Butler County, but I figured I knew a swindle when I heard it. I remember thinking any city that'd pay for ice was liable to slap a tax on well water. God Almighty, What did they charge for sunshine? New Orleans was only a way station. The previous year, I'd attended a talk where a man told us that the federal government of Mexico was promising 177 acres of farmland and 4,000 of pasture to families willing to settle between the Sabine and the Nueces. His name was Sterling Robertson. Wasn't much to look at, but he could have sold socks to savages. He said that in Texas there was every kind of game deer and antelope, turkey and bear, bee trees and grapes, persimmon trees and cherries. The climate was mild and there were Mexican soldiers to keep the Indians at bay. Sliding down the river on that flatboat, I thought how Robertson made Texas sound like Eden before the fall, or Kentucky, Kentucky back in Boone's day before the slavers came. I sat watching the country drift past, the fields and farms, the wooding places where steamboats put in to collect fuel for their fireboxes. My heart was homesick and heavy, but every mile south seemed to lift the burden of it. I still thought you could leave America, where the planners and plant managers had everything locked down and laid out. Texas was a free frontier, promising folks like me the chance to start fresh. It's a peculiar sort of man who needs a fresh start by the age of 20, but I was always peculiar. I reckon that twenty seemed old to me at the time. Now it seems so young. It was certainly too young to understand that America wasn't something you left as much as it was something you carried, a shape inside yourself, the way stone is shaped by water, all these channels carved inside your soul. So... While you might have thought you were living in America, all that time it was living in you.
2: That's a that's a great passage. Uh, thank you. It 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 really lays out uh, the story uh, before you and and lays out the 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 environment and the, and the, that moment in time really well. Uh, and there's some some beautiful lyricism in there as well. Thank you, yeah. thank you. Something happens
0: to my voice when I read Duncan. It's happened from the very start. I start doing this other thing, yeah. so I can't not do it after a while.
2: <laughs> you got to channel that character. So.
0: I guess. I guess.
2: Well, one of the interesting things, not only about, about, about the way the story is written as a whole, is that each chapter is, uh, in, is alternating between Duncan and Cecilia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one chapter will be the f- first person of Duncan, and then the next chapter will be Cecilia. Uh, in in a close third person, right. uh, and you alternate that way throughout the novel, and, and and for most of the novel they don't even meet. Uh, th- their their stories sort of flow side by side, but at at, at different locations and and to slightly different times to some extent as well. Right. Uh, what made you choose to do uh, a to to do that to, to structure the novel that way, but also to have uh, Duncan in first person and Cecilia in third. So the.
0: When I realized that the book, this book, All God's Children, would need to be the first part of this story, roughly the first third of this larger story that, that I had um, conceived, I started with Cecilia. I, I knew that Duncan was a character. I had no idea he was going to be um, what the novel started with, but the first the first pages, chapters I wrote of this version um, was Cecilia. And uh, the third third person limited is what comes naturally for me, a close third person. Um, th- that's what felt right. I wanted both to capture Cecilia, her interiority, but to allow the narrator to be able to look around her and to paint with a, a brush that would be a little greater than what one subjectivity could take in. So um, that felt right for Cecilia and gave me a certain kind of voice with regards to her. And then when I realized Duncan was going to be a character, I began writing to figure him out. I began writing first person pages. And I read some of those to a buddy of mine and he said, well, that's a great voice. He said, that should be in the book as it as a first person, and so that uh, was convincing to me, um, and I realized that those two voices uh, were different enough that I felt like one belonged to Cecilia or was her, and then Duncan's voice belonged to him. I wanted them. It's often difficult in a novel if you're uh, if you have more than one narrator, even if one of those is third person, you're you're always kind of struggling to to make them different enough. But not, not so different that they seem from different worlds.
2: Yeah. One of the things that's interesting about Cecilia and and is that she is educated uh, Mm -hmm. to some extent. She's she's uh, learned to read, and uh, uh, and when she was younger, I guess her her master used to make her read the Odyssey uh, Mm -hmm. uh, to guests, Uh, and she looks at herself as Odysseus uh, at times. and, and tell me about was that an intentional concept to, to try and and give her a storyline that is a bit Odysseus, uh, but but not too close.
0: Yeah, I I started by a lot of the research by reading um, slave narratives. There's one from Harriet Jacobs, who was a woman who was enslaved here in North Carolina, and uh, has a harrowing story, and then. She writes beautifully, too, despite not having been, I guess, formally educated. But similar to Cecilia, her, quote, mistress um, teaches her to read and write. Um, This also happened with an enslaved woman named Phyllis Wheatley, who was classically educated. Um, Now, there are, of course, real problems with this in terms of the people around Phyllis Wheatley taught her as a way of showing her off. So it wasn't about uh, imparting this education because they cared about Phyllis Wheatley. Um, there's a sense that they wanted this woman that they, quote, owned to, to manifest these uh, educated ways, etc. But Phyllis Wheatley was an amazing mind. And not only did she master Greek and Latin um, and the classics, she became a a writer. She wrote this beautiful poetry. Um, And so I had these two models of what Cecilia could possibly be. One influenced by classical literature, um, and another influenced by this, uh, this indomitable spirit, like Harriet Jacobs, who was, who was able to go through an odyssey of her own in in order to escape to Boston, I believe is eventually where she, where she got away to. Um, And so I I thought, okay, Cecilia, her, her consciousness, her temperament, the way she's constructed would see herself as the hero and would take comfort in stories like those of Odysseus. Um, And I thought about the way that, The television shows we watch, the novels we read, the movies we watch, um, how the escapism inherent in watching or reading about a competent person uh, enduring trials, there is a real power that comes from that. Uh, Human beings can convince themselves that they're capable of much more than they might be by listening to, reading, watching stories about heroic Heroic people, even if those heroic people are fictional. So I thought that this would be not only a way that Cecilia escapes the pain and humiliation of being an enslaved woman, but it would also, it would also be a way for her to wet her the, the blade of what would you call it? It's ambition, uh, but it's also courage, all of those things that she'll need to escape. And there are, there are allusions to the Odyssey throughout. I didn't want those to be, as you say, so close that it seems like okay. Well, the book is a retelling of the Odyssey, and it has to tick off all these marks. There's a character who's blind in one eye. Um, there's there are various trials that she goes through that that um, they don't repeat the Odyssey, but they rhyme with the Odyssey in different ways.
2: Well, there's a certain mythology that you can feel within the characters and, and throughout the story which uh whether they rhyme with the odyssey or not are are, are the things that make it sort of a, a a deeper universal book uh as opposed to simply a, a plot line uh and right and i think it's uh, i think it's very effective um the other thing that i also noticed speaking of sort of heroic characters uh, you touch uh, various heroic characters from the time period who, who aren't main characters in the story, but sort of pass through the story. Uh, people like right. Sam Houston, right. uh, Colonel Bowie. And right. We get a quick glance of uh, uh, General Grant uh, early right. in his career, uh, who were all cutting their teeth on the uh, Mexican-American War. Sure. Uh, tell me sort of uh, about how those characters sort of worked their way in and, and how you kind of looked at that.
0: I realized in reading memoirs um, from the time, particularly the memoir written by Noah Smithwick, who himself is a character in the book, Um, he wrote a beautiful memoir called uh, Evolution of a State about his time on the Texas frontier. And one of the things I found striking is when you think of someone like Sam Houston, you think of being the common man being as distant from him as as the common man, as we are from Barack Obama or Joe Biden or, or Bill Gates or some eminent person. But there were so few people on the Texas frontier that you common, I mean, uh, right before uh, Texas seceded, Smithwick went over to Sam Houston's house in the governor's mansion, knocked on his door, uh, offered to help him fight for the union. Sam brought him, or yeah, Houston brought him in the parlor and said, no, that's okay. I appreciate it. I mean, there, but there was a sense that you could get at these eminent figures. You could go, um, you could go have a beer with, um, Jim Bowie provided you're willing to buy the beer. Uh, uh, actually Noah Smithwick created the Bowie knife that Bowie became famous for, uh, on the sandbar fight. Um, and, the problem was the knife that Bowie used in the Sandbar fight that bore his name. He was afraid to carry it or use it because it had become so famous. So he put it in a glass case. So then he needed another knife. So then he went to Noah Smithwick and said, "Aren't oh, you want to make me a knife? And this time, make me one with a hilt and make me." So he creates <laughs> Noah Smithwick created the Bowie knife that we now know the Bowie <laughs> knife. The other knife is just a butcher knife. Right? So the way that, that celebrities, what we would think of as being celebrities, historical personages passed through the book is, I believe, the way people uh, ran, ran into one another and interacted on the Texas frontier. Grant, during the Mexican-American War, was a quartermaster. He was a lieutenant. He would talk to countless people. There was nothing in Grant's past up to that time, or even up to 1861, that would indicate that he would be a lieutenant general or president of the United States. You know, Two years before the Civil War, Grant was selling firewood on the streets of St. Louis to buy his kids Christmas presents. He was completely ruined as a man. Then he couldn't even make that work. He moved to Galena, Illinois, and he sold uh, leather goods in his father's uh, store. And then four years later, he would be a lieutenant general commanding all forces, all U.S. forces on the continent. And eight years later, he'd be president.
1: Well, I'm gonna jump back in here, listeners. Uh I've been fascinated here watching um uh, watching and listening to this uh interview. We've been talking about the book All God's Children with uh Aaron Gwynn as the author and, and being led. I'm gonna to have to watch out for my job here because Paul did a great job of conducting this interview uh today. Uh Paul, thanks for doing that.
2: Oh, you're welcome. I I was great to do it. Yeah, thank and you. It-
1: and Aaron I'm looking at your uh, I have the chance to look at the bookshelf behind you here I see there's a book of Grant on your shelf back there so you've got to- Probably
2: <laughs> probably
0: quite a few right Yeah I've yeah. got an I've got an entire shelf of Lincoln Yeah right I, here if I you I can see, see
1: Lincoln and Grant Well yeah. listeners listeners I've been listening to this and and thinking about uh you know my favorite westerns and uh both movies and books and you, you're in for a treat because um we're going to actually jump over to our Patreon platform now uh, Paul and uh, Aaron and I and we're gonna uh, we're gonna find out a little bit more about uh, Aaron's background, how he grew up uh, out west, and how that guided his writing a little bit. We're gonna talk about classic and contemporary westerns, and tips on how to write them. And uh, so it's it's gonna be a lot of fun. You can check that out at Patreon. That's p a t r e o n dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. You can also find a link on our website at Charlotte dot All good stuff. Uh, and so we look forward to seeing you there, Aaron. Um, great book thanks so much for being a part of uh, Charlotte Readers Podcast
0: thank you so much for having me thank you Paul thank you for for great questions great discussion
1: well that's it for today another fine author giving voice to the written words you can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast Stitcher Spotify iHeartRadio